0: Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and consider the great work that Christ has done, that you uh, gave your only Son uh, to suffer such great matters uh, for the good of our souls. Lord, we praise you for the truth uh, that the gospel teaches us uh, that the perfect one suffered in our place. Father, would you help us to honor you this morning as we listen to your word? Would you give us ears to hear and help us to be ready to be doers of your word, not hearers only? Amen. Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18? We've been studying for several weeks uh, this chapter in Matthew's Gospel, and this, Lord willing, is the final sermon from this chapter, at least for the next several months. And we'll be thinking about the matter of forgiveness, and yes, what a weighty theme that is. Forgiveness is basic to the Christian life, and yet, so many times it can feel quite impossible to forgive. I know that. I'm sure you know that. Each of us can think of probably a long list of things that you have had to pray over and maybe sweat over, knowing that you need to forgive another. It may be possible that some of us sit in this room today having things for which we need to forgive and yet have not yet. And this morning I seek not to bruise your toes, but to direct your hearts to what Scripture says about this matter of forgiveness. And I would pray for you, that which I would also pray for myself, that as Psalm 8611 says, as the Lord teaches us His way, each of us may walk in His truth, and that He would unite each of our hearts to fear His name, even in the matter of forgiveness. And it's important that we learn the way of the Lord when it comes to forgiveness. Because the the world around us, the contemporary worldview all around us, offers us little or no help in this matter. If you are around people for any length of time, you will discover that most people seem to be striving after a skewed sense of justice that says whatever offends the individual is certainly not acceptable, much less forgivable. Whether it's on the highway, or in politics, or at the dinner table, or on social media, whatever offends me is the the most wrong in that worldview. There seems to be no room for reconciliation, but plenty of opportunity for vengeance. No forgiveness, but much condemnation. And even when secular counselors mention terms like forgiveness, they don't mean the same thing that believers do. It's usually for the purpose of self-gratification. As if refusing to forgive another is just a fence restraining us from being at peace with ourselves. One contemporary counselor says, you do have a choice to say I forgive you, regardless if the offender hears you say it or not. And here's The important part. A large degree of your happiness depends on it. Your relational progression is essential to it. Your health is even at risk because of it. Well, refusing to forgive certainly does have personal side effects, but certainly there are greater motivations to forgive than only our individual happiness. Now, just to be fair, I understand why the world thinks this way. The world looks at the highest motivation for everything as being the self, ourselves. I am the one who defines what my life should be like. But that's just the nature of sin. Raising ourselves above everything else, even above God himself. And so we as as a church in the world of the church, we must be strategic, even zealous to protect our teaching our doctrine from the world's views even on forgiveness we must listen to what scripture says so that when we come to the matters of relationships with other people with our relationships with people in the church and even relationships with people outside the church we we live in a way that pleases the lord not in a way that pleases the world Brothers and sisters, we have a far greater reason to forgive than just pleasing ourselves. When Paul wrote to the community of believers in Ephesus, he said, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's really what is so heavy about the matter of forgiveness. It's not primarily the suffering. That the offender, the the one who has to forgive, has suffered, but it's a presentation of the glory of God and his forgiveness of his people. That trite expression you probably are familiar with has some accuracy. To err is human, but to forgive is what? Divine. And yet in Scripture, because forgiveness is a divine reality, it is also in Christ a human possibility. If you would be like God, you would forgive. It boils down to the simple truth. Christians are forgiving people because they have received forgiveness in Christ. It's been helpful for me to think through this whole chapter, Matthew chapter 18, all at once. I think we've been able to see uh, the the words of Jesus uh, more clearly as we take them all together. All of these different sections go together and and they make sense, and hopefully today this passage will make sense coming at the end of the chapter instead of all by itself. Last week Nathan taught on the responsibility we have to confront sin and seek restoration with those who have offended us. And this week's passage almost equalizes the force of that teaching. And here's what I mean. If 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 the pendulum seems seems to swing very strongly towards the sinner or the offender in verses 15 through 20 this week it swings with equal force back towards the offended party in verses 21 to 35 and if you would be eager to participate in biblical reconciliation then you must also be eager to offer heartfelt forgiveness we can't have one without the other and this is what life among God's people is like. What else have we been learning in chapter 18 but that life in the kingdom is about humility, concern for others in the church, considering what is good for them, seeking after those who stray and reconciling with them. It's about counting others more significant than yourselves. And this is where we are at the end of Matthew chapter 18. Peter, the apostle who speaks sometimes too much, opens up the door for Jesus to tell a parable. And Peter is thinking about what Christ has taught his disciples about going to a sinning brother, and he asks a question. Would you look in verse 21? We'll start there and I'll read to the end of the chapter, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart these verses begin with a question peter's question to the lord you may have been thinking the same question last week as we studied those other verses from jesus's teaching on restoration If this is true, that we pursue reconciliation with our brothers, well, how often should I expect this to take place? Is there a limit to to restoration, to to forgiving a brother and restoring him to the relationship? And we can be grateful to Peter here because his question is helpful to us, gives us a little more insight into what Jesus was saying with the, the matter of reconciliation. But as Peter tries to answer his own question, he, he falls short. I say he tries because as he answers, it's not exactly what Jesus would would say. Peter aims for a high standard. He says, "Should we forgive as many as seven times?" The Jewish practice of the day was understood forgiveness to, to come as many as three times, but after three, that was it. There was no fourth time for forgiveness. And the Jews kind of made this practice up by putting some verses together from Amos and from Job, and those verses don't really say exactly forgive three times, but they've, they try to create a principle that would direct believers, the Jews, to, uh, to follow that way of forgiveness. But Peter aims for something much higher, for more than double the cultural standard Should we forgive up to seven times? And I get a bit of a sense that Peter is still maybe even subconsciously aiming for greatness. Do you remember in verse 1 of chapter 18, that's how this whole conversation started. The disciples came to Jesus. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And now Peter is saying, how many times should we forgive our brothers? Not just three, but maybe seven? Seven times? And even as we think about that question for ourselves, we think seven is a whole lot. To forgive the same person (laughs) Maybe even For the same offense But Jesus' answer is Much more drastic Not seven times But seventy times seven Your version may say Seventy seven times But the issue here that Jesus is pointing at Is not forgive exactly Seventy seven times Or forgive exactly four hundred and ninety times The point is Forgive countlessly, endlessly, continuously, perpetually. Don't stop your forgiveness. You might be able to keep track of seven times. You probably can't keep track of 77 times. And you most definitely won't keep track of 490 times. But this is the essence of Jesus' teaching. Forgive. Just forgive. How many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Jesus could have said, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots more, but forgive him. See, the process of restoration is not a one time cycle, it doesn't happen once and then it's over. It goes on as often as necessary. We will continually be in need of reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. So we will continually be in need for the attitude of forgiveness to our brothers and sisters. Forgiveness is not about keeping an account. Forgiveness is actually the opposite. It's about releasing from an account. Now, forgiveness, just to be sure, is not a doormat attitude, as if you're a doormat and you let everybody come in and step all over you and do whatever they want and anybody can get, get by with anything over you. That's not a forgiving attitude. Forgiveness is not the okay response. Someone says, I did this, and you say, it's okay. No, sin is not okay. Sometimes it requires confrontation, and it always requires mercy. And sin is not, or, uh, Forgiveness is not a denial of the consequences of sin. There are consequences. If someone injures you, you should and may forgive them, but if you're bleeding, the blood doesn't stop flowing. Forgiveness is a bold, decisive, reasoned decision to not hold the offender guilty of judgment. Jay Adams describes it like a threefold promise to the one who is repentant. I won't bring this up to you again. I won't bring this up to others. And I won't repeat this offense in my own head. I won't bring it up to myself. So to keep record and count up all the offenses that have been forgiven, As Peter really implies Goes against the very nature of the act of forgiveness In Luke 17 Luke records this conversation A little bit more succinctly In verse 3 he says If your brother sins, rebuke him And if he repents, forgive him There's no counting, no recording there And then in verse 4 If he sins against you seven times in the day And turns to you seven times Saying I repent, you must forgive him And to drive the issue home for Peter and the disciples in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us this parable. And who can leave the hearing of this parable without feeling the weight of their own unforgiving attitude? But this is the Lord's point. This is why he gives us such a strong parable. To drive home in our minds and in our hearts that forgiveness is an essential spirit attitude of God's people. It is significant. Just as offense and sin is significant, so is forgiveness. It is necessary to a believer's life of faith. Let's look at what he says. Therefore, that's important. Because of this issue of continuous forgiveness, because you should continually forgive, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a king and his servants. It's like this master, this king. We can easily understand this to be God. God is the king. He is the master of his kingdom. And he has servants as every king does. And so there is a servant who has a debt towards this king. And this servant is probably less like a slave and more like a civil servant Maybe something like a tax collector or a a lord of some lands. And those lands are obligated to pay taxes to this king. And so he has amassed this debt of maybe taxes that he must bring to the king at some time when when he is called to give an account. So he has an obligation and at some point this obligation will be called up so to speak. And here he has been called in to settle his account. And if that's the case, then this servant doesn't just have this exorbitant loan to pay. He has already received his king's money. He's already received this great amount. And he has brought nothing to the king. He has embezzled this money. In effect, he has stolen from the king. Not just not been able to repay what he borrowed, but he has taken what was rightfully the king's. When he is brought to account, His debt is 10,000 talents. Now, it's hard to get an equivalent amount of dollars for this because values of money change so frequently. But if we could just compare terms, it might make it a little more simple. Most people would agree that a talent equaled 20 years wages. So any given person might be able to earn three talents in his whole lifetime. Now, in comparison... If we think about what the Bible says about talents, if you remember back to Exodus 28, the people were to give offerings for the provision of building the sanctuary, and they would give even gold and silver, and the Bible describes how much gold and silver was required to construct the sanctuary. Remember, they made utensils and bowls out of solid gold, and and they made bases for the pillars in the tabernacle out of solid silver. I mean, this was... Much more exorbitant than what we might experience today. But even in that whole construction, the amount of gold and silver was 129 talents. And then in 1 Kings chapter 10, King Solomon, the most prosperous king in all of Israel's history, remember, he had so much money that he made gold shields just to hang on the wall solid gold. The Bible says that King Solomon's revenue from his taxes of his lands and his time of prosperity in one year was 666 talents. But this servant owed his king 10,000 talents. And this word 10,000 is actually the largest Greek number that has a word associated with it where we get our word myriad. So you've heard myriads of angels, and it gives us the idea that there's just a large number, more than you can count. That's the word for 10,000 here. So we might not be even thinking about a number as small as 10,000. It could be even more than that. A, an amount of talents that is innumerable, immeasurable. This servant owed his king a debt that he couldn't even count much less was he able at this point to repay. And the servant arrives before his king with nothing, empty-handed. And the king completely understands the situation. Even if he worked all of his life, he will never even come close, not even making a dent in his debt. And so, like an ancient tax collection or a collections agency, the king would sell the servant and his wife and his children and all of his belongings and at least get a little bit of an amount to make up for the loss. And everything else he would just absorb as bad debt. But the servant and his family were destined for slave labor the rest of their lives. And even that wouldn't make up for the debt that he owed. Now, imagine the desperation of this servant. At once, when this reality comes to mind, the fate may seem worse than death. Him and his whole family are immediately sold into slavery. He will never see freedom again. So, nothing is below him at this point. He falls on his knees to grovel before the king. He implores him, Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. No, he won't. Even if he had his whole life, he could never repay the king. And yet, in verse 27, we see the character of the king, the attitude that the king has. This was no unjust king. This was a very gracious king out of pity for him. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The servant fell on his knees and begged the king, and the king released him. Simply out of pity. And in verse 27, that word debt is actually the word for a loan. The king decided to treat this as a loan that just wasn't going to be repaid. So instead of thinking of the servant as one who was a thief and took money that was already the king's, he just decided to, to write it off as a bad loan. And the servant was free to go. And at this point in the parable, we're thinking what greatness of the king what mercy for the king to have upon his servant. We, we get a lofty view of the, the master here. and In the next section, we, we get a lowly view of the servant. Look how the servant responds even to his own debtor. He went out and found one of his fellow servants. He didn't just wait for one to come along. He went and found one, another servant who owed him money. He looked for him purposefully, and this one owed him 100 denarii. Now, in comparison, a denarius is a one day's wage. The amount of money that this servant could earn in one day, he owed 100 denarii. Now, that's not insignificant, three and a half months pay, but that is certainly, certainly repayable. But what did the first servant do? He seized the man choked him and demanded repayment. When the second servant begged for more time, promising to pay, which was actually a possibility, what did the first servant do? The Bible says he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He threw him in debtor's prison until he could repay. And readers get the point here this is clearly a contradiction to what had happened to the first servant. Clearly a, an antithesis to what the king did for the first servant. And everyone around him in his own life understood what had just happened when his fellow servants saw what took place. They were greatly distressed. And we, we put this together with the passage before and we think maybe, maybe one servant went to confront him and that didn't work. So maybe two servants went to confront him. And maybe then a group went and confronted him. And he was not willing to, to listen to their confrontation. And so they have no other appeals but to take it right to the king. And so they left this wicked servant to the, the choices, the decisions, the sentencing of the king himself. The unforgiving servant appears before the king. But this time he has no ability to speak. He, he must only listen And the king speaks and says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? He had forgiven that debt and so now what this servant owes to his fellow man is mercy. He should have displayed even a small amount of mercy. What's a hundred denarii when it comes to 10,000 talents? But the servant had refused to show mercy So the master gives them over to the jailers. In the original language, the idea is torturers until they could extract from the servant what he owed. And the message of this parable isn't too difficult to get. God the Father is not pleased with his children who do not display forgiveness after they have been forgiven by him so much. And if all that is clear, then I come to the question, why is, this, why is forgiveness so difficult? Why is sometimes it so hard and so unappealing and so many times infrequent? Why is it that even believers refuse to forgive? And I came to the conclusion it's because that many times those who have been offended remember the wrong things. Let me try to illustrate that. Listen listen to this. Memory has a powerful effect. Consider the differences here. I remember my family vacation from last year. The seven-hour car ride squeezed into 12 hours with five kids who would not take a nap. The lodging with 14 people, all of whom think for themselves. Walking up and down two flights of stairs to get from my car to my room and back. Meals prepared by people who don't understand how I like my food. The sun came up early every day. I could not sleep in. Nights came late because other people kept talking. Sand in my clothes, sunburn on my arms, so much stuff to pack that we had to take a long car ride back home with five kids who were obviously exhausted and yet still did not want to take a nap. Or, I remember my family vacation last year. It was the first time that our family had been able to do such a thing in several years. So I had four kids who were pumped about seeing the beach months before we ever left the house. We had a long car ride, but there were many great, fun conversations, and there was a lot of laughing. We got to spend five days with even extended family, and I was able to speak with them about things that I hadn't got to talk to them about in several months. I got to read most of a book doesn't happen very often my wife didn't have to cook every single meal which was great I got to see three kids who had never seen the ocean be amazed at that sight and then I got to consider with them the vastness of our Lord I looked out the window every day and could see the majesty of the creator and I looked inside at my family and I got to consider his kindness to me I was able to play with my kids for more than half an hour at a time Days in a row. And I could go on and on and on. But you get the point. Memory has a drastic effect upon our lives. And we could stay in the rut of having bad memories when it comes to the offenses of others towards us. We could focus on things like how wrong the other person was, how much the offense hurt, how much we lost as they offended us, how many times the person has wronged me or other people in the past, how long this effect is going to last upon me. It's not likely that you can or will forget those things. I don't mean that. But if that's all that you remember, you will not be able to forgive. You will not display the kind of actions that God has performed even for your own soul. What believers need is not a bad memory but a good memory and a good memory properly aimed at the right things. One who is quick to forgive will remember several things. I've got five of them for you this morning. First, remember the character of God. We see that in the the master, the king of this parable. Consider how the parable points to God the king This king was obviously very wealthy. For one servant to owe him 10,000 talents, I can't imagine what all he did own. That's what God is like. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, cattle don't really seem very valuable to me, but he owns everything else. The Bible says that God owes no one any debts, he doesn't owe anyone anything. He is obviously very wealthy. As Lord and Master over all his kingdom, God is also just, and he holds debtors to their debts. He calls people to give account for all that he has given them, and he judges based on how they have used that provision. And yet, when there is no fruit to be shown, or worse, when there is only bad fruit to be shown, this Master is also freely willing and ready to. To forgive. He is not only just, but also the justifier. As Micah 7 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And if he who owes no debts to anyone freely forgives the debts owed to him, certainly men who are debtors can forgive. So I wonder, is forgiveness really too hard when you remember the most holy master whom you have offended? Remember also the character of man. Look at how this servant acted. This servant was empty-handed. He had this immense debt, but he had nothing to show for it. In fact, he had squandered the king's money. There was no way he would ever be able to pay back the debt that he owed. And this is nothing less than the debt of sin. The Bible describes sin as a twisting or a marring of even right and good things. It is a crossing the line, overstepping the bounds of of what God has placed in a person's life. It is blatant disobedience before the Lord. One Puritan said that sin is like treason before the majesty on high. Men are born in sin. It's our heritage. No matter whether gene therapy is possible or DNA restructuring, those designer babies still can't get past the fact that they are under the curse of sin, even from conception. And then men live in sin. Every individual practices sin willingly and with great concentration. Or... Naturally, with little thought and little concentration. We sin against God, separating ourselves from our creator. We sin against other people, erecting barriers to right relationships among our fellow creatures. The Bible, in Psalm 19, points us to the fact that you have sin that you know about, and then you have sin that you don't know about. Sin you readily confess, and sin you readily hold on to. Like David in Psalm 40, you have countless sins, more than the hairs of your head. You could never probe the depths and the intensity of sin in your own life if you tried. And each of those is a debt owed to Almighty God. As if that's not enough, we die because of sin. The paycheck for sin is death. And death, even is not the end... Apart from divine mercy, the debt of sin against an infinite God demands an infinite payment. And then man's disposition to divine justice is such that even in hell, the sinner is opposed to God's character. So then even something like purgatory can't purge the leftover taint of sin. Man left to himself will always be offensive to God even for eternity. Job's friends were sometimes right when one said, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. And so there is no end to the judgment. And this servant, in Matthew 18, had no recourse but to get on his knees and beg for mercy from the king. And in the same way, you and I have no means of any hope of satisfying the debt of our own sin, except to just beg for mercy from the Lord. And the good news, church, is that God gives mercy. And if you have come to Him and pled for mercy and, and sought to rest in Christ alone, then God has forgiven you. Is forgiveness so hard when you remember the utter sinfulness? Of your own offenses before God? Remember also the significance of your own forgiveness. Of the forgiveness of your own debt. Sin. The debt of sin is so great that the payment must have been equally great. Don't overlook this fact that your sin required an unmatched payment in order to be forgiven. The debt of sin cost God greatly the death of his only son Isaiah 53 describes the burden upon the son of God he was pierced he was crushed he was chastised he was wounded he was oppressed he was afflicted he was taken away he was cut off he was stricken he was crushed he was put to grief and for what? for our transgressions for our iniquities For the transgression of my people, he says, his soul made an offering for our guilt. This was the cost to pay the debt of sin that was not his own, but was the sin debt of the people. By the way, we will partake of the Lord's Supper a little later on this morning. And that celebration... Connects both ends of this idea, the the payment for sin on the one hand, but also the ones for whom the debt has been paid on the other hand. When Jesus was instituting this supper in Matthew 26, he said his blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we come to the Lord's table, and as a church, we proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection, and we proclaim that it is enough to settle our conflict with the Lord. This body and this blood took care of our debt, but it is also enough to settle our conflicts with each other, and so we partake together, and as we as we celebrate, as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes individually, we do that together, and we rejoice together that not only our conflicts with the lord are settled but our conflicts between each brother and sister is settled and so we hear the words of paul in first corinthians 11 anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself and so as as this body of christ and this local church we discern the body as we partake of the elements we we evaluate is everything settled are matters forgiven are relationships right? Because to be in conflict with a brother or sister and yet proclaim to be right with God doesn't make sense. But consider what Christ has done from Hebrews chapter 10. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So, how does God look at forgiven sin? What is the significance of this forgiveness? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He will again have compassion on us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot, he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And we can pray as David prayed, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And church, that prayer is answered because of the gospel. Is forgiveness really too hard when we remember what God has done to secure our own forgiveness? We we'll remember also the insignificance of others' debt to us. When we compare the debt we have owed to God with the debt that we require from others, there is no comparison. And as painful and lasting as they may be, even the greatest of offenses pale in comparison to the sin that each of us has carried to the Lord. Some of the students have been reading the Pilgrim's Progress, and if you're familiar with that story, you know that Christian carries around a burden on his back. And I was thinking how that's very picturesque to show us the weight of sin that we carry, and yet it is far inadequate to display the weight of sin. Because if... Christian had a burden on his back that he was supposed to carry that equaled the weight of his own sin, he would not be able to lift it. I certainly don't want to minimize or marginalize the offenses that some of you have experienced. I know of some. I don't know of many more. But I do know that those offenses are weighty. They have lasting consequences. But in comparison, is there really anything that another believer or even an unbeliever could do that would compare with the debt that you have owed to God? In the parable, the contrast is 100 denarii to 10,000 talents. For you, it may be a few years offense to an eternity. Is forgiveness actually too hard when we remember how much we owed God? Last, remember the consequences of unforgiveness. So what happens to those who are unforgiving? The last portion of the parable gives us thoughts here. Someone read the end of this parable as, God turns over this servant to punishment in hell to pay the debt that he owes since he is so demanding about the debts that were owed to him. It's as if God's initial forgiveness at the beginning was a false conversion and the one who does not forgive does not truly understand the forgiveness that God has granted. And that is a very compelling understanding And I've wrestled with trying to figure out if that's accurate. But there are more compelling, weighty things to me in this passage that would point in a different direction. Because all along from the beginning of chapter 18, Jesus has been speaking to his disciples. He's been speaking to believers. And even in particular, he's answering Peter's question and telling Peter a parable about Peter's relationship with a brother. And if we are going to say that the master turned back from his forgiveness to his servant to consign him to hell, then I think we risk presenting an improper view of salvation. And it also breaks down the whole point of the parable because this servant was really forgiven. That's the issue. He actually was forgiven his debt. Salvation is neither earned on the front end nor kept on the back end by any good work that we do. And the gravity of this parable is that the servant had an immeasurable debt that the master released him from. So at the end of this parable, what he owed was not 10,000 talents. He still could not repay that debt. But what the master said to him is, and should not have you had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? What he should have given to the fellow servant was mercy. He owes him mercy. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. This is how we treat others in the body. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So when this servant refused to forgive and demonstrate the mercy of the king, The king turned him over to the tortures of corrective discipline. Just as a faithful father disciplines his children to learn the right way, so God does for his children. So it is possible to actually be forgiven this immense, immeasurable debt of sin and then suffer in a life which seems like torture. And it may be that that comes because of an unforgiving spirit from God's children. Just as the brother who continues in sin is disciplined out of the fellowship earlier in Matthew 18, so the unforgiving brother who persists in unforgiveness is disciplined by God to learn forgiveness. But his discipline is described as at the hands of Torturers. So what are these tortures? What are these consequences of refusing to give? Bitterness? Trouble? Defilement? Loneliness? Hatred? Resentment? I've had conversations with people who, even believers, professed believers, who harbor resentment for some offense that happened decades ago, and they still have not been able to Reconcile, forgive those who have offended them. And absolutely is it a spirit of bitterness and resentment in their heart when in reality the offender probably doesn't even remember what happened. Anxiety, stress, sleeplessness. Those worldly counselors do have medical research to show that unforgiveness can result in ill health that may not be the primary concern for granting forgiveness but it is a true effect to being unforgiving Hebrews chapter 12 tells us God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Lord has demonstrated forgiveness. His people know what forgiveness is. Brothers and sisters, indeed, if you are a Christian, you know what forgiveness is. It is foundational to your identity in Christ. And if at some time you are, for, you are offended, But you refused to forgive. The Lord will teach you how to forgive. This is the warning of the parable. Unforgiveness denies the teaching of chapter 18. It denies childlike humility. It denies a zeal for turning away from selfishness. It denies a concern for straying brothers and sisters. Unforgiveness denies a concern for the restoration of the repentant but it does affirm selfishness. Unforgiveness says, my concerns are the most important. Offenses towards me are the most severe. The restoration of my brother is a very small thing, but his repayment to me is what is most important. Unforgiveness is simply a a form of silent revenge. One can be unforgiving in the heart and no one else will know except for you. But it's also a self-destructive form of revenge because the decay works from the inside like gangrene in the heart, and in the mind. Unforgiveness is opposed to biblical doctrine. It contradicts the nature of God. It says to the believer, even though God has forgiven you, when you repented towards him, yet I will not. Or in the case of an unbeliever, even though God is freely ready and willing and done what it takes to forgive you of your sin when you repent to him, yet I will not. Unforgiveness contradicts the work of Christ. Even though Christ shed his blood as a perfect sacrifice for the eternal weight of your sin, I am unwilling to release you from this debt. And unforgiveness contradicts the experience of the Holy Spirit and the believer. Even though I have peace with God, I shall not be at peace with you. And so God will teach his people to forgive. And it may seem like being with the jailers or the torturers until his people should learn to, f- to forgive To pay all that they owe, which is mercy, like the mercy that has been shown to each of us. Brothers and sisters, the good news is that we know what forgiveness is like. We do not hear these words thinking they are harsh towards God's people from the Lord himself. We hear these words knowing God has taken care of our problem. He has forgiven us this debt. And so we need only imitate our Lord in this matter. And yet, even as it feels very difficult, we understand why Proverbs nineteen eleven says, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is oftentimes extremely hard to forgive. But if you would aim to forgive Remember what God has done for you. It may be that some of you need to repent before the Lord this morning of unforgiveness. I would ask that we take a time of prayer. Would you close your eyes and spend some time considering your own heart before the Lord? Express your gratefulness to him because of the forgiveness that he has shown you in Christ. then consider if you have any relationships that need to have forgiveness borne out in. Matthew chapter 5 warns us, if you are offering your gift at the altar and they're remembering that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Being unreconciled with a brother and attempting to worship is futile. Another consequence of an unforgiving heart is the inability to worship properly. Maybe there's a brother or sister, even in this room, to whom you need to express forgiveness to or seek forgiveness from. Or maybe... It is that you harbor resentment to an unbeliever. And even though you can't offer the same kind of forgiveness to that person because they are not repentant towards you, you can have a forgiving spirit toward them. You can offer the option of forgiveness. You can stand before the Lord as one who is ready to forgive, as one who is ready to imitate the Lord forgive and reconcile as soon as they might repent and that will please the Lord Father we stand before you